Today's text, Matthew 14, 22 to 36, is one of the more familiar. We see one of the more familiar miracles from the New Testament. It's Jesus walking on water. Uh, we see this miracle recorded in not just Matthew, but also in Mark and John. And as I go through our text today, I'll be referring to Mark and John's account quite a bit to add context. But only in Matthew do we also see Peter walking on water. And because we see Peter who has this glorious moment of walking on water, but also to quickly sink in the water, I think much is made of Peter's faith and it's what's often highlighted. And while there is much to talk about Peter, and we're going to certainly take a closer look at him, we don't want to lose sight of what the text and this miracle is really about. It's about Jesus, that he is God. So the main idea of today's message is this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the Son of God. And as the Son of God, we're going to see this Jesus who prays, who is present, and who saves. Jesus who prays, who is present, and who saves. Look at verse 22. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Why did the disciples have to get into the boat and go before him? And why did Jesus make them do this? To take on this job of dismissing the crowd himself. And why does Jesus do that immediately, as our text says, right? Why does he do that with a sense of urgency? For one, it was to protect his disciples from temptation. Again, in verse 22, it says that Jesus made them to get into the boat. In the Greek, for the word made, it means exactly that. It's that he, uh, it's the Greek word anakazo. Anakazo, it means to compel someone to act in a particular manner, to force someone to do something. So Jesus forced them, made them get into the boat. Pastor Mike mentioned in last week's uh, message on the miracle of feeding the 5,000 or the you know, 20 plus thousand. And he, Jesus recognized that the crowd wanted to force into making him their king. We also read from Mark's account of today's miracle that the disciples did not understand about the loaves, meaning they, the disciples, just like the crowd, missed what the signs were pointing them to, which was the fact that Jesus was God incarnate. Jesus knew his disciples were vulnerable to get caught up in the noise, so to speak. Right? They knew that the crowd wanted to make Jesus king. So Jesus needed to quickly remove them from that environment. He was protecting them. But another reason why Jesus quickly sends away his disciples and takes on the task of dis dismissing the crowd himself was so that he could be alone and pray. I don't know if you remember, again, from last week's message that before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was trying to get away. But it was the crowd that got to him. And, and it was Jesus' compassion that propelled him to heal their sick. So, He's trying to get away, gets caught by the crowd, he heals them, and then he feeds them, right? And that's where we get in our text today. 
What was important for Jesus was that he was actually able to be alone and then spend time in prayer to commune with God the Father. Now, while our text does not say the content of Jesus' prayer, just as he went up the mountain alone to pray, but we can be sure of how much he valued prayer. For one, he prayed for a long time. Just this in this instance. It says in verse 23 that when evening came, he was there alone. I don't know what's evening, I don't know, 6 or 7 p.m. Sometime in the evening, he was alone in the mountains. In verse 25, it says that it was in the fourth watch of the night, which would have been 3 to 6 a.m. And that's when he came to the disciples. So we're talking about, I know, an estimate, maybe about a nine-hour period of Jesus being in the mountain or a, a, a hill alone praying. Some suggest that it was because it was a critical moment in his ministry that he felt the need, the serious need for prayer. Uh, some scholars make the connection of the, the crowd uh, forcing Jesus to be a king and then Jesus also being in the wilderness, uh, being tempted by Satan, uh, that who, who offers him all the kingdoms. And so making that connection that this is a matter of resisting temptation. Some say it was Jesus actually interceding for the disciples because we see that he actually saw them. I think this is from Mark's account that he sees them struggling in the lake, as we'll see later. Whatever the case is, whatever that he was actually praying for, what we can be confident is that this was a vital part of his life, his ministry. It was to get away, to be alone, to spend time in prayer. And it's New Year, right? It's been a couple of weeks. Today's the 14th. And we look back at the last year and in the New Year, we set goals and you know, want to improve or better ourselves. So, what does your individual prayer life look like? Attending prayer meetings and groups, and it's, it's wonderful. I would highly encourage that. And I think the Bible says much about praying with others, praying with one another, praying for others. But how do you carve out time or schedule to pray alone? What sacrifices have you made to ensure that you are praying to God, seeking his guidance and wisdom, praising him, confessing and repenting of your sin, interceding for others? casting your burdens, lamenting, thanksgiving. I mean, there's so much that we could do in praying to God. And if Jesus, the Son of God himself, went the lengths that he did to ensure that he was praying to his Father, how much more are we in need of prayer to pray? Jesus models for us his unwavering dependence on God the Father through prayer. So we look to him. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the Son of God, who prays. We also know, Scripture says that he intercedes for us. So we look to Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who prays. 
Next, we see Jesus who is present with his disciples. And we'll see this as we take a closer look at the miracle of Jesus walking on water. Now, before we get to the actual scene of Jesus walking on water, let's look at the situation the disciples were in in which led to Jesus walking towards them. In our text, we see that the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land. And in the parallel passage in John 6, it says that the disciples had rowed about three to four miles, which would have been halfway to where they're trying to go. So we know that this was not shallow water. Like, they weren't close to the shore. They're in the middle of the lake. Some scholars have tried to debunk that, oh, maybe Jesus was walking because he was really just walking on shallow water where there were rocks. That's just not true. We also know that they had been on the lake trying to get across for a long time. Well, how do you know that? Well, if Jesus had been praying alone for as long as he was praying, let's say it was about nine hours, I can't be for sure, but a long time, that's as long as disciples were rowing, trying to get to the other side of the lake. And it wasn't because it was a long distance to cover. I said, again, it was about halfway through where they were in. So they would have gone there in much quicker fashion. But it says that the wind was blowing against them. And to add to this, in Mark's account, it reads that Jesus saw, while he was still up in the mountain or the hill, that they were making headway painfully. Or a more literal translation being that they were straining and rowing because the wind was against them. So they were really struggling. And the issue wasn't that they were in danger, or they felt that they were in danger due to the storm, like they were back in Matthew 8. Because there is no indication that there was fear due to the wind and the waves. We don't see that in our text. As one commentator put it, quote, the, disi- the disciples' predicament this time is the inability to make headway rather than an imminent danger of sinking, end quote. So the problem was that they were stuck in the middle of the lake. They had been struggling for a really long time and hadn't made much process because the wind was against them. So here was Jesus, having watched his disciples being on the struggle bus. He walks down the hill towards his disciples, and then, yes, he walks on water. And we'll come back to the significance of Jesus walking on water. Let's look at verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. They cried out in fear. So what elicited such a response of fear from the disciples was because they thought they saw a ghost. I was talking to some of our younger friends. that I told them that I would be talking about ghosts today. The word translated as ghost comes from the Greek word phantasma, which is where we get the word phantom. The only other use of this in the New Testament is the parallel passage in Mark, in Mark 6, and also in Luke 24, when the the two disciples headed towards Emmaus, they see the risen Jesus, and they think that he is a spirit or a ghost. And at that time, it was commonly believed that there were ghosts or spirits 
that would be in the waters or around the waters, and the sight of one would indicate doom or judgment. But as one scholar put it, the disciples, the disciples thinking that they saw a ghost was more so representative of an instinctive superstition rather than some well-thought-out, formulated belief. So it was an instinctive reaction like, oh my goodness, that must be a ghost. Because it didn't matter how much this person looked like Jesus. It couldn't have been Jesus. They were in the middle of the lake. And there's no person that could be walking on water. So at the sight of something that seemed like a person walking on water, they were terrified, thinking that it was a ghost and doom was imminent. Our text actually says they cried out in fear. The Greek word translated as cry out is the verb krazo. Uh, we saw krazo uh, in, I think it was Matthew 9, when the, the blind man cried out to Jesus. But in our um, context, it actually means to make a vehement outcry, to cry out, to scream, to shriek. They were not just spooked. Oh, it's a ghost. Ah, They were... Absolutely terrified. Terrified. But in response to their screaming, immediately, our text says, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart or take courage, it says in some other translations. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus' response here is a twofold answer. In one sense, he is saying, Oh, guys, guys, hey, hey, chill out. It's me, Jesus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But in a far more significant sense, when Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, he's not just saying, hey, don't be scared, it's me, you know, the teacher, the rabbi. He is saying the reason why you should not be afraid is because I am God. We're going to see how our text today, Matthew 14, 22 to 36, is, is a prime example of Jesus confirming his deity. And it makes a fool of all the people who say that they believe in God, they believe the Old and the New Testament to be the Word of God, but in the same sentence would say that Jesus never claimed to be God. How is that? Well, first, he did only what God can do. He walked on water. We've seen all throughout the book of Matthew this you know, last year, and we'll be seeing the rest of this year, 2024, of right, the crowd and their unbelief. They did not see the purposes behind Jesus' miracles, right, all the healing, and, and even last week, the feeding of the 5,000. They missed what he was pointing to. And according to the Old Testament, Walking on water is only something that God can do. In Job 9, 8, Job is describing who God is, and he says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? We already saw him silencing the storm, right? Back from Matthew 8. In Psalm 77, verse 16, When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. 
Verse 19, this is Psalm 77. Your way was through the sea, your path through the water, the great waters. So again, only God could walk on water. But not only does Jesus do only what God can do, he also identifies himself as God. Where do we see that? Sandwiched between take heart and do not be afraid, in our text we see Jesus saying, it is I. In the Greek, it reads, ego eimi. I am. In all three accounts of this miracle, in Matthew, Mark, and John, we see the same self-identification. Ego eimi. Well, where do we see ego eimi? I am. In Exodus 3, Moses encounters God, form of burning bush. And Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, What does God say to Moses? I am who I am. He also tells Moses to tell the people, I am has sent you. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, God's answer of I am is the exact same self-identification, ego, amy, I am. So Jesus claims to be the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we see here, Jesus not only showing the disciples that he is God by walking on water, he also says he is God. In other words, the disciples should not be afraid, not only because Jesus is not a ghost, but even if there were ghosts, they should not be afraid because God was with them. Brothers and sisters, those of you who have truly repented of your sins and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that God is with you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the Son of God. He is with you. And because he is with you, you do not have to be afraid. Because he is with you, you do not have to be anxious. Now, God's presence in your life does not guarantee a life without pain or suffering. If anything, we saw Jesus was the one to send the disciples out into the lake. They're going to go through the struggle bus. If anything, a walk with Christ guarantees a life of suffering and pain from following him, obeying his commands. But what he does promise you is his presence. He is with you always. He is with you in your pain and suffering. He is with you when you are stressed and overwhelmed. He is with you in the midst of your trials. He is with you even if you don't think it is possible for him to be with you, as it was with the disciples. And he is with you when you mistake his presence, his loving presence, as judgment, as it was with the disciples. He is with you even when you don't feel that he is with you 
or when he feels the furthest away from you. If you're truly his, he's with you, he will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a few weeks ago in my preparation for today's message that I was reminded that I, I remember that I preached a sermon in Joshua 1 while Tina was pregnant with Victor. There's God's command, right? It's not a suggestion. It's a command to, to not be afraid. And why does he give Joshua that command? It's because God was with him, just as he was with Moses, that he would never leave or forsake him. He says to be strong, courageous. Do not be frightened or do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So I was freshly reminded of God's assurance of his presence with me and my family with all the certainty around Victor's health. And yes, even after his birth, there were many challenges that our family faced. One of the scriptures that really comforted me during those first few months, years, maybe even now, and one that I often share with others is Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A very present help in trouble. And going back to Exodus 3, when Moses says, again, same account, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God's response that I will be with you. Brothers and sisters, he is very present with us. He is our very present help in trouble. So whatever it is that you're going through, maybe think that you see ghosts. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the Son of God, who is very present with us. We saw Jesus who prays, Jesus who is present, and last, may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the Son of God, who saves. Like I said, this, Peter, this scene of, of Peter walking on water is only found in, in, in Matthew. And after Jesus reveals himself and says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, we see Peter's response to Jesus when he says, this is verse 28. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And then Jesus says, come. What does Peter do? He gets out the boat and actually walks on water. Much has been made of Peter's request. Charles Spurgeon's interpretation actually was quoted by many of the other commentators that I read up on and that was either because, to some degree, they agreed or disagreed with his interpretation. But he essentially sees Peter's act as an impulsive act, that it was an imprudent request, and that in, in some ways he was wrongly testing Jesus. He writes, quote, what did, Peter want the wa- what did Peter want with walking the waters? His name, which in Greek means rock, might have suggested that, like a stone, he would go to the bottom. End quote. Now, was he testing Jesus? 
Was he just trying to be closer to Jesus because a lot was going on? I don't, I don't believe that we can be certain of why Peter made the request, but really that's not the main point. What we do know is Jesus does not chastise him for making such a request, and for whatever reason, Jesus says, come, gives the command, come. Peter obeys and actually gets out of the boat and walks on water. But what transpires after he takes those first steps on the water is what we should really pay attention to. So I said in the introduction that many people have tried to make today's text more about Peter than Jesus. Uh, you know, and, and some would, would take today's text and make it about Peter's faith, having more faith. And if, if you have a lot of faith, you can do and achieve great things, miraculous things like Peter walking on water. So you need to pray and ask for more faith so that you can achieve these goals. Take those giant steps of faith and walk on water. Now, not only is it problematic to make more, to this text more about, uh, more about Peter than Jesus, but also is problematic when you focus on the wrong things about Peter. Because what, what we can really learn from Peter is, is not so much the great achievement of walking on water, it's what led to his sinking in the water which consequently, consequently led to his crying out to be saved. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, but when he saw the wind. Have you had days where it's like the best start to your day? Like you woke up before your alarm went off, right? took a nice shower, made some coffee for you and your spouse, you know, made breakfast for the family, got a workout in, got to pray and read the Bible. You beat the traffic, you get to work on time, like 10 minutes before, like, just like the most smoothest morning. You sit at your desk, and you're just ready to take on this world, right? Your heart is just full of gratitude and joy and you got your praise on, like, it's just great. It's a wonderful day. But then you saw the wind. Right? You take that first sip of coffee, it spills because your spouse didn't tighten the coffee tight. And it's always the spouse's fault. I don't, I don't know. Okay? You get a harsh email from your boss. Your grades were just posted and you, you weren't expecting to, to get that. You find out a family member was diagnosed with a serious health condition. Call from your child's school. Kid got in trouble. I mean, I could go on and on, you know, for hours and hours of just all the ways that it seemed like we were having a pretty good day or going through a pretty good season in life until we saw the wind. And then we begin to sink. Our dancing turns into mourning. And all that gratitude, joy, contentment, and praise, nowhere to be found. What's interesting is Peter was not afraid because there was a sudden gust of wind. Our, our text does not say that. If anything, the wind was always there. And we know this because it wasn't until later when Peter and Jesus got into the boat 
it says that the wind ceased. So the wind was always there. He had his eyes on Jesus until he lost focus. And I came across this analogy of, of, a, of a camera lens. Now, most of us here, so we have smartphones. We all, think, we all think we're professional photographers with our little smartphones. But my guess is there are only a few of you that actually know how to use and handle an actual camera. We have to focus with the lens or switch out lenses and all that. That's not me, but I'm sure there are a few of you that know how to do that. And yes, you tapping the screen to focus on, that's not focusing. That's not the focus I'm talking about. Well, my understanding is that, again, I don't know anything about cameras, is that you can, when you focus on one thing, it will blur out the other things. But then when you try to focus on the other things, you end up blurring the thing that you could once see clear. So it's fine about how you focus, right? I think, does that work for you guys? I see, I see a couple head nods. Okay. So I think that's how the focusing of a camera lens works. So you end up blurring out the thing that you wanted to see clearly because you end up focusing so much on the things around it. Peter lost focus on Jesus because he was focused on the wind. His focus on Jesus became blurry as his focus on the wind became clear. And in that moment, he forgot. He forgot that he was only walking on water because Jesus commanded him to come. Not because he had some kind of power within him because he was some special snowflake. That's not why he was walking on water. He forgot that just moments ago, Jesus said, I am. I am God. Don't be afraid. And it was just a slightest bit. When he took his eyes off of Jesus, he became more aware of the wind. The weight of the wind, or his senses were more heightened regarding the wind. He was overcome with doubt, which led to fear as he began to sink. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt, says Jesus. Do you remember the last time the disciples were freaking out on a boat in the middle of a storm back in Matthew 8? What does Jesus say? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. But when Jesus pointed out Peter's lack of faith and his doubt, he was not speaking of Peter's theology or his Christology, his understanding of who Jesus was. It wasn't that Peter was theologically uncertain. As one commentator put it, quote, Peter's problem was not so much lack of intellectual conviction as the conflict between Evidence of his senses and the invitation of Jesus. So to be faithless, he says in quote, is to lack the practical confidence in God and or Jesus, which is required in those who seek his supernatural provision. I'll say that again. To be faithless is to lack the practical confidence in God and or Jesus, which is required in those who seek his supernatural provision. Unquote. Simply put, again, faith is, can be a lot of things and is a lot of things. Here. It is trusting and having confidence in Jesus. It is trusting that he is who he says he is and being confident that he will keep his promises according to his word, to trust him. Now, you do need to assent to certain truths and you need to be able to understand those truths. But ultimately, 
Do you trust him? Uh, some of you see me hobbling around a little bit, just a little bit. Um, had a little ankle injury this past Wednesday. Certainly, it was one of those wins that caught my attention, and my faith was tested. My trust in him was tested. I've had bad ankles for the last 20 plus years. It's funny. Stephen said when he first saw an ankle, he's like, oh, I hope he was someone that broke his ankles playing basketball. That was not the case. Um, that was not the case. I did not get my ankles broken on the basketball court, even though that's happened many times. Not this time. Um, so nothing, nothing's new. That's, that's, hurting my ankle, been there, done that. But when I felt what I felt, and in the hours that followed it, it felt like one of the worst ones I experienced. And I don't know if that was just recency bias, but it, it was bad. And uh, while the pain and discomfort, discomfort, it was no fun, and hopping around, trying to crawl up the stairs, all that, it was not fun. And it's still not fun. But what really got to me was my inability to do anything. Even more so that I had to lean on my very pregnant wife with just about everything. Um, she's not here today, apart from overexhaustion. I think it's safe to say that. Um, that was hard. I remember Thursday, we got a little flurry, but I look outside and I couldn't help Tina to get the kids ready to go to school. Just sitting on my butt in bed. Um, I was super frustrated with my circumstances. In those first 24, 36 hours, There was no fixing my eyes on Jesus. I, I, I confess to you. All I could see was the wind. All I was focused on was how much pain and discomfort I was in, how useless and how much of a nuisance and burden I was to Tina. I wasn't looking to God for strength and comfort. I wasn't praying. My mind was just stuck on that stupid angle and all the inconveniences that it has caused. And what was truly exposed was my self-confidence and my self-dependence. My responses to a lot of things showed how I believed it was my strength, my power, my abilities that even enabled me to do the things that I would do for my family. Not because it is God that empowers me. And what I should have reminded myself was that I should not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let my requests be made known to God. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. And then I realized, oh, I'm preaching a sermon. Something about fixing my eyes on Jesus. Trusting him. So God gave me a wonderful personal illustration to share with you all and how, what it looks like to allow the winds and the worries of the world to distract us from not fixing our eyes on Jesus, the Son of God. And his timing was perfect to test my trust in him and to humble me in all the ways that he did. What about you? 
What is the wind that is distracting you right now, maybe, even in this moment, from fixing your eyes on him? What is that thing that maybe didn't at one point, but now looks clearer, and as a result, blurs out Jesus in your lens? Wrestle with that question. Now, as Peter, going back to our text, as Peter, again, he begins to sink, and he cries out to Jesus, says, Lord, save me. Jesus doesn't wait for Peter to, Peter, you know, the rock to sink just a little bit more, just so that, to make sure he learned his lesson. Let the guy, you know, take a couple of extra gulps of water before. No, it says, what? Immediately. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. And when Peter and Jesus get into the boat, as our text says, the wind ceased, and then the disciples worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, the disciples, they had witnessed all the different miracles, and again, just just last week, saw Jesus feeding the 20,000. But just like the crowd, they had missed the sign. Right? They did not see Jesus as God. But here, see, according to our text, we see for the first time their confession. That Jesus is truly the Son of God. We must fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the Son of God. The only God who can save. Now, Peter's crying out to be saved probably was not because he had eternal life in mind. He was thinking he was about to drown, so he just calls out, save me. But he says, Lord, save me. He believed Jesus, his Lord, was able to save him. And as Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon writes, quote, Peter was near his Lord when he was sinking than when he was walking. In our lowest state, we are often nearer to Jesus than in our more glorious seasons. <laughs> Peter was near his Lord when he was sinking than when he was walking. In our lowest state, we are often nearer to Jesus than in our more glorious seasons. End quote. And while Peter was of little faith and had doubt, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and saved him. We won't spend too much time on the last four verses, but what we see is, as we did last week, we see Jesus' compassion. Um, summarize, he, they get to the other side of the lake. People recognize that it's Jesus. You know, the miracle worker is here. So what do they, do? they rally up all the sick people. And then it says, they implore him, or as most translations say, they beg him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. Where did we see that? Our text doesn't explicitly say this, but I think it's safe to assume that word got out about the bleeding woman who grabbed the fringe of Jesus' garment and was healed. And so in hopes that they could also be healed, they begged that they could just touch his garment. And what does the end of our text say? And as many as touched it 
it being the garment of Jesus, were made well. This is such a glorious act of his mercy and his common grace to all. There is no, just anyone who touched his fringe, the fringe of his garment was healed. And that's why I believe this is also an act of his compassion. There's no confession of the crowd worshiping him, saying that he is the son of God like the disciples did, but they were all healed. As many people touched him were healed. And it is that same compassion that moves Jesus, right? Was the splakitsumai, as Pastor Mike would say, with the oomph, right? That, that kind of gut-wrenching feeling that moves to action. That's why Jesus reaches out his hand to an imperfect people in need of a Savior. To save them, in some cases, and not only, as we saw, not only, but in some cases, for imminent danger, as was the case for Peter, but more importantly, the power and penalty of sin. Those who truly repent of their sin, recognize that they are a broken, sinful people deserving of God's eternal wrath, and believe that only Jesus, only Jesus, the Son of God, and his work on the cross can save them from the penalty and power of sin. Those who call Jesus Lord, save me, and submit to a life of obedience according to his word to such a people, Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and takes hold of them to save them. Now this invitation to be saved and receive everlasting healing, because that's not what these people that were healed in our text received, was not everlasting healing. It was temporary healing. They all eventually either got sick or died. But to receive everlasting healing, life is extended to all. All of us here. And if you have yet to respond and say yes to this invitation, what is the wait? Do you not see Jesus as the Son of God? As your Lord? And do you realize, friends, do you realize that if you have not said yes to that invitation, you are currently sinking into the depths of hell? Have you cried out to him to save you? Lord, save me. Dear friends, don't wait until it's too late. Cry out to him today. Today can be the day of your salvation. Cry out, Lord, save me. And as he said in his word, immediately he'll reach out his hand and take hold of you and save you. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. As I close, what Peter and his disciples displayed in today's miracle of Jesus walking on the water really nicely encapsulates the life of a Christian, a follower of Christ. We saw from the disciples a moment of obedience, right? When Jesus said, you guys got to go, they say, all right, I guess we got to go. So they go. And in Peter's case, we see his 
obedience to the command to come, he obeys and actually gets out of the boat and walks on water. And as a Christian, there are times, praise God, there are times when we do walk in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we hope that we have more of those moments, days, and seasons of our life where we see, we can, we can clearly see our growing in Christ-likeness, right? Our deeper dependence on Him in times of prayer. But we also see the disciples mistaking Jesus as a ghost. Absolutely terrified. We see Peter in a moment, took his eyes off of Jesus, focused on the wind, which led to his sinking. And similarly for us, how often do we actually mistake his loving presence, the Holy Spirit in our lives as judgment and curse because of how difficult our circumstances are? How often do we catch ourselves from drifting? not focusing, not fixing our eyes on Jesus. We say, we believe. But we need help with our unbelief until Jesus returns, as we were saying earlier, that our faith is turned to sight. And when we realize we are sinking, we turn to Jesus, the Son of God, in his utter dependence on God the Father, who prays and intercedes for his people. We cry out to him who is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And we cling on to him because only he, God, the I am, can save. And only he can empower us to press on forward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so we run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God right now. Brothers and sisters, may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray.